Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of the person, that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Seen one of those, well, they're kind of like advertisements concerning what happened in the year of your birth. Like sometimes it'll pop up on the internet. Or maybe even what happened in the year of your birth on your birthday. Sometimes those will be available to you. I'm, I'm a complete sucker when it comes to those things. Every time I see it, I click onto it. I, I check what happened in 1961, which, by the way, was the year of my birth. I check what happened on June 1st, 1961, which you can imagine is the date of my birth. I check what happened in 1940, which is when my mother was born. I check what happened in 1936, when my father was born. I'm just an insatiable, curious history buff. I love this stuff. So when I think of the book of Revelation and cities, the first thing I think of is, what was the city like? Or, what was actually happening in the history of the city that might correspond to something else? So today, I want to remind you um, that we're in this series on the seven books, um, the, the book of Revelation and the seven first sections of that book relate to particular cities where John addressed a message from God through an angel. So today we're looking at the city of Sardis. Sardis. First of all, where was Sardis? I've used this map several times to remind you of our journey. John is writing the book from Patmos on that island. The first book that we discovered, um, a letter to was Ephesus, then up to Smyrna, then to Pergama, then Thyatira, and now today Sardis. So if you look north of Sardis, you'll notice Thyatira. That map's probably not perfectly to scale, but to the north of Sardis is Thyatira about roughly 30 to 35 miles north, and as you can see, Sardis is slightly to the east. So it's the southeast of Thyatira. When you think about Smyrna, the dot there should probably, to scale, be a little wider. That dot indicates 50 miles due east of Smyrna is where Sardis was. Now, you'll also notice something about Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, most of the cities. They weren't located along a coastline the way Smyrna and Ephesus were. 
On the other hand, Sardis had its own distinctive geographical features that were very helpful to its economy. Um, Another slide shows you something of a view of Sardis. Notice the big mountain up there at the top. Everything below that mountain is a very fertile valley. And you can see over to the left, there's some farming going on there in modern times. And like all of these cities, they have uncovered ruins in Sardis uh, that help us remember or think about what the city might have looked like. That was a grand structure. Here's more of a close-up of it. You can see the kind of stonework that was done. This was an amazing city. It also had a very long history and a rich history. So about 560 years before the birth of Christ, the city of Sardis was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, a very influential, powerful king ruled that capital city. From that point on, we know Sardis in several stages. One of the things we know about Sardis is that Cyrus of Persia actually captured the city. And after that, we know that other people captured the city. On two different occasions, the city was captured because it was, well, not watchful. It just wasn't watching itself. And by stealth, some soldiers from an opposing country slipped into Sardis and wrecked havoc on that town. Now, the the slide here is a picture of a Well, kind of like a praetorium. It's it's a castle. It's above the city, looking down on the city. And it was a watchtower. This place was very well guarded. But in spite of the fact that it was very well guarded and very well fortified, it has a history of people slipping into its ranks and destroying it. There was one other thing that was, I thought, fascinating about Sardis. Not only did eventually Alexander the Great conquer the city, but in 17 AD, 17 years before the birth of Christ, the city was absolutely destroyed by an earthquake. 17 AD. So let me go back to my curiosity with history and parallel times. In 17 AD, Jesus was a teenager. In 17 AD... Sardis had never known his name. In 17 AD, hardly anybody in Israel knew who he was. Roughly a hundred years later, now there comes a letter that becomes absolutely historical for the rest of the history of civilization. A letter from Jesus to the people of Sardis. I just think that's intriguing. Now, all of a sudden, everybody in Sardis knows about Jesus, or at least we think so. What we think about the city of Sardis is that was a very wealthy, prosperous city, but it was a very religiously diverse city. And it was a city that allowed for different religions. One of the things we've uncovered that is, archaeologists, are pictures of a Jewish synagogue in that city. You can see the elaborate mosaic work on the floor. 
Another picture that steps a little further back gives you a view that shows you a bit more about how grand it was. That would have been inside before uh, the ruins were uncovered, before, before it became ruins. And what you can't see with that picture is something that's rather astounding. That synagogue was said to be a hundred yards long, the length of a football field. That was rather unusual for a synagogue to be that big in the eastern part of Asia Minor. Furthermore, that synagogue was in a prime real estate area, sort of right downtown, right next to a huge gymnasium, which was the center of the city's activity. Why do I say that? It's likely, though we don't know, that the Christian community, just like the Jewish community, was well-received. That that Christian community actually was well-respected. What we know concerning Sardis is there's no reference to persecution. It seemed like a very well-established, satisfied church in Sardis. So what were the issues at this church? As usual, the angel gets right to the point. And here's what he said. This is the most abrupt of any of the seven letters. He says to them right up front, you've got a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. You got a reputation for being alive, but you're dead as a doorknob. That was the issue. It's fascinating that they were dead. You got to wonder why. Were the outward elements of the church remarkably successful? And that contributed to their deadness? Were they well-respected among city rulers and just assimilated into the culture? And that contributed to their spiritual deadness? Were they a city, in a city, where they were known as people of good works and good deeds, doing lots of things for the city and everybody applauded them and, and thought they were wonderful? Is it possible that that was one of the reasons for their deadness? Could they have been a city, a church in a city that was so well known around the Christian community that they had ministerial conferences there? All the churches wanted to go to Sardis and study and think and hear somebody preach. All, All of this, by the way, is complete speculation. We don't know exactly, exactly why they were dead, or should I say the contributing factors to their deadness. But they were living, the angel said, on their reputation. Their reputation was vibrant, and their reality was dead. There's only one positive feature in the letter to the church at Sardis. It's really not even a positive feature. 
It's just a hopeful one. The angel says, you're all but dead. But there are some people among you who have unspoiled clothes. They're dressed in white, which was an image of purity. There's some people among you, there's a remnant among you that actually is following God the way they ought to. This notion of a remnant in the history of the church is very widespread. The church has gone through many times of um, decline. And always during the decline, there's a remnant of people who have not forgotten. It's part of the Old Testament narrative. You remember Elijah when he was crying out against the idols and the gods of Baal confronting Ahab and Jezebel and he brought up 450 prophets and had a showdown and when it was all over, God won. And what happened to Elijah? He ran into the wilderness, tucked his tail between his legs, covered himself up and cried out to God, okay, I did my job, kill me now. Maybe he was exhausted spiritually. You've probably been there. I've tried so hard, it's all over, forget it. I'm the only one, said Elijah. And God said, oh no, there's a remnant. There's a remnant of people. They're in this country. And they're calling on me. That's what the angel says to the church at Sardis. You're almost stone dead. But there's a remnant. So, if there's a remnant, if they're not actually completely dead... What's the remedy? The remedy is, well, return and remember. The angel doesn't say your Redeemer's coming. The Redeemer had already come. It was Jesus Christ. They knew the Redeemer. What he said to them was, you need to remember You need to remember where you came from. You need to remember the day when Christ was your all in all. You need to remember. It hasn't always been this way. Second, you need to strengthen what remains. To put it another way, it's up to you. Do you want to die or do you want to live? It's up to you. Strengthen what remains. There is life in you. Now strengthen it. Get busy. You've got it in you. Kind of like a coach who challenges an athlete. There's way more down there than you're letting me see. Step it up, kid. You can be great. Or like a medical doctor or a therapist says to someone who's going through therapy after a radical surgery, I know it hurts. But I want you to remember, you were once vibrant and healthy. And you can be that again. But you've got to strengthen what remains. I remember an occasion in which those words, not exactly, were told to me routinely. I had rotator cuff surgery. For those of you who don't know what rotator cuff surgery is, it's a surgery from hell. It's awful. And when you're done, you think you may never be able to raise your arm again. Much less throw a football or a baseball, which I love to do. And the doctor and the therapist said, oh, no, it'll come back. But you got to be committed. you got to strengthen what remains in there. You have to do your exercises. It did. I can throw a football. 
But there was a time I thought I would never be able to again. Strengthen what remains, says the angel. Do, can I say, your spiritual therapy. Return to what you once were. How do you do this? Or to put it another way, if we ask an introspective question concerning ourselves, how do we do this? Well, first, you remember, you know, that's always a timely admonition for any Christians in any era. It could be timely for a church. It could be timely for individuals. What is it? Remember who you once were. Remember the time where Jesus was everything to you. Remember when you were rescued and you had no hope and you were infused with life. Remember how you woke up every day fully alive. Remember how you were in love with Jesus. Remember. Remember in return. That's always a timely message. And it's always a remedy. Cultivate the flame, says the angel. Because it'll go out if you don't. When I was a kid, I loved to go camping with my friends, especially in junior high and high school, and we'd go way out in the woods. Matter of fact, a a friend whose father had a pickup would pile us all in the back of the pickup, and he would drive out to the to the edge of the Everglades in South Florida and drop us off and then drive home. We were on our own. And we absolutely loved it. And we always started a fire. And you know what happens with a fire. It gets big. It's fun to watch. Keeps you warm. Though we didn't need much warmth in Florida, but we kept the fire going because we never wanted it to go out. You had to fan the flame. You had to add the logs. The angel's saying, return, fan the flame, add the logs. The angel is also saying, I think, don't get static with your past success. Don't rest on your laurels. Don't get satisfied. That is absolutely deadly. Before long, when you're satisfied and everything's going well, you know what the seductive nature of sin is at that point? To conform to the world. That's why Paul says, don't be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're different. You stand apart. It's got to be that way. Don't be static. Continue to push. Continue to grow. There are times in the church when we are too successful. There are times in the history of the church when power 
got to the heads of leaders, there are times in the history of the church when cozying up to politicians was favored among the leaders. And the ominous story that some of you know, and maybe all of you know, is what happened to the church in Nazi Germany. In mass, my friends, in mass, it cozied up to Hitler. But there was a remnant, a remnant of people that said no. And they started what was a thing called the Confessing Church, smaller than the big church. One of their leaders was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's outspoken nature placed him in prison, and eventually he became a martyr in prison because of his faith, because he refused to go along with the crowd, because he refused to cozy up to the political leader. It's always a danger, isn't it, for the church to cozy up to power. Return, be careful, repent, says the angel to the church at Sardis. I think one final thing the angel is saying to the church at Sardis is I want you to remember, I want you to remember a time where you didn't feel so self-sufficient. I want you to remember a time where you didn't rely so heavily on your own human wisdom. I want you to remember a time when you weren't all that successful. And I want you to return. You know, I, I think returning always means repenting. But it also means listening to the Spirit. Because we can be really smart and correct about our theology, about our routine, and lose the fire and the flame of the Spirit. We can make decisions without really consulting the Holy Spirit. We become so efficient When do we stop long enough to pray? When do we stop long enough to be guided by the Spirit? Not just by our reason and our instincts, which are not necessarily wrong, but guided by the Spirit. Is it possible? Is it actually possible? That human reasoning, even for those who are devoted to Christ, could lead them astray? Is it possible that perfect doctrine could lead us to deadness? Is it possible that our self-sufficiency would mean we have weaned our way away from God? I want you to remember the first three chapters of the book of Genesis for a moment. 
Maybe the first thing that comes to mind is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe speaking into life everything and all that's true. Maybe you think about the stewardship that was given to the creatures in the garden, Adam and Eve, to cultivate the garden and care for it, and all of that is true. But there's something else in the garden narrative that's even more important. These people were created in the image of God. And being in the image of God, they reflected something. They reflected relationship with one another and relationship with God. And in the cool of the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God as they walked with a friend and talked with God as they talked to a friend. Advanced thousands of years into the future and the God who is in Jesus Christ comes alongside and calls people to walk with him. Tells the disciples, I want you to follow me. I want you to listen to me. And they become so attached to him that they're terrified when he's about to leave. And he says, don't be terrified. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'll always be here for you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit who's going to witness concerning me and he will be with you. And what happened to the church when they caught on to that message? The church exploded on human history. Why? Because it was self-sufficient? No. Because it had power? Absolutely not. Because it was so smart. Are you kidding me? No, none of those things. The characteristic of the early church was that it was led by the Spirit. So, the difficult application for us is Are we? As individuals and as a church? Are all of our decisions covered in prayer? Are we constantly asking God, Lord, what should we do? Enlighten us. I don't know what you hear when you hear this story. But I know what I heard. I heard two words. Well, preface with my name. Bob, wake up. I think that's the word for it, everyone. And I'm calling you calling us as a church to reassess where we are, to listen to the Spirit, to return, and to wake up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, even the hard truth, because this wasn't easy. Wasn't easy for Sardis to hear. If the application has been proper this morning, it wasn't easy for us to hear. But perhaps that's a message for us. 
Lord, help us remember when you were everything. Help us remember when it, it felt like you were walking with us and we were walking with you. Help us to remember when our every decision was just covered in prayer. Help us to remember when we didn't know the nature of self-sufficiency. We only depended upon you. You've taught us so much, Lord, especially those of us who have followed you for many years. But there's always something else to learn. And the danger of our knowledge, our education, is that it could make us lackadaisical and even dead. Because this thing called the Christian faith, it's not just about ideas and getting it right. It's about a living relationship with Jesus Christ our Lord. So may we renew our commitment, remember, and turn back to you. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.